for sin. Amen. Well, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. If you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, we have been going through the book of Revelation. We find ourselves uh, about halfway through this amazing book. And though there are definitely some difficult places and some difficulties in interpretation, uh, we've looked a lot at the Old Testament because if you understand the Old Testament, you'll understand this book a lot more clearly. And John's readers would have understood the Old Testament, known it. Even this morning, some of the things that are being discussed, some of the imagery that is described is from, it's straight out of the Old Testament. So if we understand the Old Testament, we will understand Revelation. We find ourselves in chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I wonder if you've had uh, the experience recently of watching a movie and immediately when it's done, you feel like I have to text somebody, I have to go see this again with somebody, somebody that I know needs to see this movie. This was the best movie and I need to tell somebody about it. Now, maybe it hasn't happened recently for you because of COVID, and we haven't been to movie theaters in a very long time. Uh, maybe it's a, a podcast. Maybe it's an app that you use. Maybe it's uh, a sermon or a song. Uh, something that you experience that you say, once it's over, I, I cannot help but tell somebody. In fact, the enjoyment of what I am experiencing won't be complete until I tell somebody. That is the very essence of what evangelism is. Evangelism is saying, I have received such amazing news that I cannot keep this to myself. I cannot contain my excitement over this amazing message. I need others to hear it. In fact, my enjoyment of this will not be complete if others are not informed, if others do not receive the gospel. Revelation chapter 11, we are going to meet two witnesses who evangelize in ways that would just put us all to shame. And though these two witnesses are not us, and they're not representative of us, I do want us, as we're reading, to put ourselves in their sandals and to ask the question, what would we do if we had their commissioning? What would we do if we were in their sandals, living in these end days, in that seven-year period of immense tribulation? Let's read together, and then we will seek to learn from these two witnesses four different lessons that they will teach us this morning. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it, because it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and will overcome them and will kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. 
And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we approach this text with absolute dependence upon you. We, we proclaim that every Lord's Day, that we cannot see anything that we are supposed to see from your word apart from your spirit working in us to see it. And we do the same this morning, but God, we also boast in our weaknesses as we studied this last week at Bible study. We boast in the fact that we are unable not only to see it, we're unable to live out the truths that you are going to teach us this morning apart from your spirit. So we don't just need your spirit for this moment. We need your spirit and we are dependent upon him to live out what we are to learn in these moments. We can do nothing apart from you. We can do nothing apart from the grace of your empowering to live out the commands that you have given to us. So we come absolutely dependent upon you, humble, broken, lacking what we need on our own to live these things out. And that's where we rejoice. Oh God, we rejoice in our Savior. We rejoice in the salvation that we have. We rejoice in the spirit that has been given such that we can stand here with bold confidence knowing that as we ask you to open our eyes, you will. As we ask you to empower us for the mission that you've given, you will. So Father, do that work that you would be pleased to do in our lives this day. As we pray every Lord's Day straight from Scripture, open our eyes. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and then enable us to live them out this day so that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, would receive the reward that he is due for his sufferings. We pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We looked first at the seven seal judgments that then opened up into these seven trumpet judgments. And this section will conclude that interlude and take us right into the seventh trumpet judgment. But before we go to the seventh trumpet judgment, we have the back half of this interlude dealing with these two witnesses. And I want us this morning to ask them to teach us, to be our teacher, and I want to learn four different lessons from them this morning, four lessons to learn from the two witnesses. Uh, lesson number one from these two witnesses, lesson number one, God's purpose for Israel will not fail. This is verses one through two, God's purposes for Israel will not fail. Revelation chapter 11, verses one and two, there was given to me, so John is standing there, he is given, again, this beautiful language of God doing the work in sovereignly ordaining him for this task. He's giving him this measuring rod, like a staff. It's like a yardstick. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God. So he is given a measuring stick and he's told, measure the temple. He's actually told to measure three things. Measure the temple, measure the altar, and measure those who worship in it. Now, why are we measuring the temple? Is it because God wants to know how big it is? Obviously not. He knows how big the temple is. Is it so we can know how big the temple is? No, because there are no numbers given. There are no dimensions given. This is not about numbering the dimensions of the size of the temple. It's a symbol. It's a sign similar to things that were done in the Old Testament, that a prophet was given to symbolize an act of what God was doing. Isaiah was given a commission, get this, to walk around naked and barefoot to signify the impending captivity uh, of Israel to the Assyrians. Ezekiel was told to dug through a wall, to dig through a wall and carry his luggage through the hole that he dug in the sight of everyone in Israel to show and signify coming exile and judgment. So there's a symbol here that John is living out. He's not getting measurements to give it back to God or to give it to us. He's signaling something. He's signifying something. What is he signifying? 
It would be as if, let's say you're renting a house from someone, and the owners of the house show up one day. You open the door after they knock on it, and you say, hey, welcome in, and your house is great. We love it. Thank you so much. And they say, great. I'm glad you're happy. And they take out a tape measure, and they just start measuring the cabinets. What would you be feeling in that moment? Start thinking, oh, no, because you know this is their house. And they might be needing to do a remodel or, oh, no, are they getting it ready to sell? That tape measure is a symbol as they're measuring, like, by the way, this is my house. You're just renting it from me. Same thing is happening here. This is a, a symbol of ownership. God is reminding us this morning of the ownership of those who reside in the temple. He's claiming the temple as his own. That's why not only is the temple itself measured, the altar where worship happens is measured, and the worshipers are measured. He's claiming all of that as his own. The fact that he's measuring, that John's measuring, is God identifying this house as something belonging to him. It's set apart. He's not trying to figure out how big it is or if it's up to code. It's God setting apart the temple for preservation. And notice, he's told in verse 2, leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it. Measure a certain section of the temple, but then leave out another section. That section is the section of the Gentiles. And he says as much when he says it's going to be given to the nations. They're going to tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. It's the Gentile section. It's the, the section of the nations. Israel is being measured. They are God's people. And the Gentiles, now the time of the Gentiles is over as the church age, as the gathering in of the Gentiles has ended. God says, leave them out. Judgment will fall upon them, but salvation will be given to my people. By the way, what is this temple? Does the Bible teach that there will be a temple that will be rebuilt during this seven-year period of tribulation? The answer is yes, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 16, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And there's a lot of other places where the Bible talks about a, a temple being built during this tribulation period. By the way, this specific temple that we're looking at in Revelation 11 is the fourth temple that's been built in Israel. It hasn't been built yet, but it's going to be. The first temple was built by Solomon. The second was built by Zerubbabel. The third was built by Herod. And the fourth is this one that will be built by tribulation Jews. There's going to be a fifth temple, by the way, that we will see in Revelation 20, a temple that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 40 through 48, a millennial kingdom temple. But this temple... God says, measure for the section dealing with the Jews and leave out the Gentile court. There, was, uh, sections. there were sections in the temple, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then a section for the, the priests, and then a section only for the high priest. And so God says, leave out the court of the Gentiles, leave out that area. Why? Because judgment is going to fall on them while the place being measured will be preserved. And this will occur at the end of verse 2 for 42 months. That's three and a half years, which is exactly what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we are given a prophecy of a seven-year period of time split into two three-and-a-half-year periods. Daniel describes it as one plus one plus a half. So, or one plus two plus a half. So one plus two is three plus a half is a three-and-a-half-year period of time. So Revelation, again, it's just a restatement of what the Old Testament had already prophesied. Daniel speaks of this, Joel speaks of this, Amos speaks of this, Zechariah speaks of this. If you know Zechariah 3 and 4, you'll understand who these two witnesses are. If you understand Zechariah 11 through 13, you'll totally get what's happening in Revelation 14 through 18. So if you understand the Old Testament, you'll understand what's happening in the book of Revelation. The bottom line is, and we've looked at this before when we were dealing with the 144,000 Jews who were sealed, 12,000 from every, uh, every one of the 12 tribes. God made a covenant with his people all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He made a covenant with his people. You are my people. That doesn't mean just because ethnically they are his people, they automatically gain salvation. They need to repent and believe the gospel. 
But the gifts that God has promised to give them, the blessing that God has promised to give them, namely a land, a place of peace, all of those things are yet to come. I mean, how appropriate is it that we're even thinking about these specific things as we see what's going on in the, in the news in the Middle East today? Israel is not at peace. And God promises there will be a time when they will own their own land, be at peace, and be safe and secure. God has promised that, and he preserves those who are his, and he makes good on every promise that he made. There's one huge lesson in these first two verses, and that lesson is that there is never collateral damage in the judgment of God. There's never collateral damage in the judgment of God. God says, I'm preserving this people, and the others will be judged. There's no like splash zone when it comes to God's judgment. There's no, oops, you're too close and you're going to be judged too. God knows exactly who has rejected him. God knows exactly who has accepted him. God knows these people. And therefore he is measuring, he's allotting, he's setting them apart so that they will not receive judgment. The second lesson that we see from the witnesses, number two, God's gospel will be proclaimed. God's gospel will be proclaimed. This is verses three through six. So not only are God's purposes going to come about in Israel, which again, we talked uh, at length about that in Revelation chapter 7. So I would refer you to that as far as the promises are concerned. But not only that, number two, God's gospel will be proclaimed. It will be proclaimed. Even in the worst of times, at the end times, during this seven-year period of great suffering, the gospel will still go forth. Verse 3, I will grant authority. So again, I will give authority. It's given from God's sovereign hand to my two witnesses. I will give authority to my two witnesses. Now, we have to stop there. Two witnesses. Who are these individuals? Again, if you understand Zechariah 3 through 4, they're going to be described in a little bit as olive branches, as lampstands. That's language taken from Zechariah 3 through 4. And in that passage, God says that though Israel is rejecting him, he is going to bring about salvation. And he specifically says in chapter 4, you remember, not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit. Right? You have hard hearts and you are refusing to believe. And so it's not by your ability to conjure up some manipulative experience to believe in me. No, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit. And God promises to send his spirit. And so he is sending his spirit through these two witnesses. Back in Zechariah 3 through 4, it's Joshua and Zerubbabel. But here it's these two witnesses. This massive covenant that God made with Israel Gonna, it's going to be fulfilled and lived out through these two witnesses, through these two people. So God's gospel is going to be proclaimed through them. Why two? Why not one? Why not three? Deuteronomy chapter 17 says, by the mouth of two witnesses, a thing will be confirmed. You need two to testify. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that if you bring an accusation to an elder or to the church about an elder, and there's nobody else who agrees with that accusation, then that testimony is dismissed because you need uh, two people going. You need more than just one accusation. So these two are witnessing about God on God's behalf, and they're prophesying. They're given the ability to prophesy. And they prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, that is three and a half years. The Jewish calendar back then was 360 days. So 360 days, it's three and a half years that they're prophesying. And they're prophesying, they're evangelizing, they're explaining the gospel, but they're doing it wearing sackcloth. You guys remember sackcloth from the Old Testament? When you would want to mourn and show your outward external sign of mourning, you would wear sackcloth and ashes. Why are they wearing sackcloth? They're definitely not fitting in, right? They're not hip people with a seeker-sensitive church saying, look at how awesome we are, believe our message, right? They're not doing that. Why sackcloth? Well, I think it actually takes us back to chapter 10, which we looked at last week. The message that they are proclaiming is a message that has inherent judgment in it. Receive the gospel, believe the gospel, but if you do not, judgment is yours. They don't do that with joy in their hearts. They don't preach the judgment and justice of God with joy in their hearts saying, we're happy that judgment's coming. No, they preach it with sorrow sackcloth, 
The message that they proclaim dictates the manner in which they communicate it. Their demeanor matches their declaration. And I believe we need to do the exact same thing as we share the gospel. We need to do the exact same thing. You, you know me. Most of you do. You know I'm a very, very happy person. I'm very jovial. It takes a lot to get me down. I like laughing a lot. I think everything's amazing. And I definitely don't think that somehow Christians are more pious if they're just Debbie Downers all the time, right? I don't think that that's a good represent, representation of Christianity, to just be like, hey, look at how somber and stoic I am, and that means that I'm pious. But I also don't think that as we're proclaiming the gospel, I don't think we do so with just, hey, everything's fine, who cares, we're fine. I don't think that we're just yippy-skippy about sharing the gospel. There's gravity to this. There's sobriety to this. And we see this in these two witnesses who are externally, visibly ex explaining and displaying. The message we have is one that is sorrowful. If the gospel is embraced, oh my word, that's the best thing in the world. If the gospel is embraced, it delivers. But if the gospel is rejected, all it does is damns you. You cannot have a middle ground of, hey, let's just explain it and be okay. No, you need to share compellingly, clearly, compassionately, and with tears in your eyes as you're telling people, if you do not repent, then judgment is yours. Again, these two witnesses are the two branches. Verse 4. The two olive trees, the two branches, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's straight from Zechariah 3 through 4. That's straight from Zechariah 4, verse 9. The two olive trees and two lampstands alluding to Joshua and Zerubbabel and Zechariah's vision. They were the two leaders. One was civic and one was religious who brought the people back to Israel from captivity. They rebuilt the temple and they reinstituted worship. The exact same thing is happening here. God has given Israel these two witnesses to bring Israel back to a place where they worship their Messiah. What does the world think of these two witnesses? Verse 5, they want to harm them. Nobody really likes them. And uh, especially when they do what they are allowed to do in judging those who would try to harm them. Look at verse 5. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, devours their enemies. Maybe this is literal fire flowing from their mouth. Maybe it's more of a condemnation flowing out of their mouth. Maybe it is them asking God to call down fire from heaven. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah calls down fire from heaven to judge a company of 50 soldiers who are sent to arrest him, and he does this multiple times. Moses does this in Numbers chapter 16, verse 35, where he calls down fire on God's enemies. If anybody wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. And then verse 6, they also have the power, these two witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. That's exactly what happened with Elijah. You remember Luke chapter 4, Jesus says that Elijah had the power to shut up the sky for three and a half years, straight from 1 Kings chapter 17. So that's exactly what's happening here. They are able to turn the waters into blood, that's straight from the Exodus, that first plague, to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. They're given the same power that the kids downstairs are learning about right now. They're learning about that tenth and final plague. So the Gentiles really don't like them. And honestly, at this point, the Jews don't like them. Because just think about what these two witnesses will be describing at the temple. What's going on at the temple? Sacrifices. Sacrifices are the way that the Jews believe that their sins are atoned for. And these two witnesses, I just picture them standing at the stairway going into the temple. They're on either side. They're saying, you don't need to do that because Jesus has already been slain in your place. This is a symbol. This was a symbol in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Lamb of God who's going to come and be our sacrificial substitute. You don't need to do this anymore. And, and they're constantly getting, oh, go away. Stop talking. You look bad. You smell bad. I don't like you. And the Jews just keep bypassing them, just going right into the temple to sacrifice. But even in this time where really no one on earth likes them, the gospel still goes forth. Even in this time when it seems like 
only darkness and evil reigns, they still share the message of the gospel. In the darkest of times, with only two people and the whole world against them, they share. Now, there's one question that everybody asks, and that's, who are they exactly? Who are they exactly? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, and I'd be easy to just leave it there. But let's, let's give some options, hypotheticals. Some people see it being kind of a resurrection of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah never died. He was just taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. Moses was kind of killed by God himself and put in Moab. And nobody knows where he's buried. And there was a fight over his body. Uh, an angel and a demon were fighting over it. So maybe because of that, the ending to both of their lives, maybe they get to come back. Also, everything that's being done here goes back to Elijah and Moses. They're doing things that are exactly what Elijah and Moses did. So a lot of people think it's Moses and Elijah. Could be. Doesn't have to be. Uh, some people say it has to be Elijah because of the prophecy in Malachi. You remember Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6? The one who is coming before the Messiah, the forerunner to the Messiah, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So most people think that that's going to be literal Elijah. Uh, even at the Passover Seder, you remember the Passover Seder we did? We had the kids go to the door and they open it and they look for Elijah because if Elijah shows up, that means the Messiah is close behind. Could be literal Elijah. You remember it doesn't have to be though, right? Because John the Baptist, remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He is the forerunner. He was Elijah if you would have received him because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you had everything you needed in John the Baptist. So maybe it's literal Elijah. doesn't have to be. Some people think it's actually Zerubbabel and Joshua because they're in Zechariah 3 and 4. So maybe it's those two people that come back. Some people think that it's Enoch and Elijah because those are the only two people in the Bible that explicitly never died a physical human death. Uh, Enoch, it just says he walked with God and was not. We, we don't know. It doesn't have a description in that list in Genesis. It's so-and-so lived, so-and-so died, so-and-so lived for so many years. And then Enoch has this strange language. He walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. And then Elijah, obviously, with the chariots of fire. So it could be any of these people. It, it might just be two humans, Fred and Joe. Who knows? It doesn't have to be people raised from the dead. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. We don't know. But what we do know is they are so faithful to share the gospel in the face of antagonistic people and people that don't want to hear it. Second lesson is that God's gospel will be proclaimed. Nothing's going to stop it, right? Jesus said that in Matthew 16. The church will prevail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will keep on pushing into the world and the gates of hell. Gates are a defensive mechanism, right? You don't attack somebody with your gates. You are attacked and you hope your gates withstand the attack. The church is on the attack, not with sword or with gun or with ammunition. The church is on the attack with the gospel and we are storming the gates of hell and we know that they cannot defeat us. The gates will not withstand the gospel. So we see that God's promises to Israel will prevail. God's gospel will be proclaimed. Number three, third lesson. Third lesson that we see from these two witnesses. The world loves sin more than the Savior. The world loves sin more than the Savior. If I'm involved in this tribulation period, if I am living during these seven years, which I don't believe that I will be, but if I am, and I see these two witnesses, and I see what they're doing, and I see how they're doing it, I stop everything that I'm doing, and I go, whatever your message is, I'm following it. I see what you do. I see how you do it. I know who's backing you, right? I'm following you. But the world around, and I know in my own selfish sinfulness, I wouldn't do that. I think I would, but I wouldn't, because the world around, verse 7, hates these individuals, kills them, and celebrates their death when they have finished their testimony when they have finished their testimony there is an allotted time for the testimony to be done i love the way george whitfield said it we are immortal until our work on earth is done you cannot die until god says it's time until your work on earth is finished and when they have finished their testimony 
the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and will overcome them and kill them. This beast, this is the first of 36 times that we see this word in Revelation. This is the very first mention of him. It's a word that refers to a beast of prey, not a beast of burden, not just like an ox or a cow that you put something on, but a beast of prey. The word connotes a cunning, unreasoning violence that acts according to its cruel nature. It's a cruel animal that acts according to that cruelty. That's what this word means. The individual, this beast, comes up out of the abyss. You remember the abyss when we talked about that satanic horde of locusts that came out of the abyss. The abyss is that prison for demons. It's a place where demons are tormented, where um, those angels that uh, did not stay within the parameters that God allowed them to, to live within, they were tormented and imprisoned in the abyss. You remember in Mark chapter 5, the, the demons, the legion before Jesus, when Jesus casts out the demons, the demons say, please do not send us into the abyss. We don't want to go to the abyss. Send us into the pigs. We just want to keep killing things on earth. We don't want to go back to that prison. That's the abyss that's mentioned here. So somehow, so some people think this is an, a demon coming out. I, I don't think it's a demon, and I, I think we can prove that later on because we're going to see a lot more about this beast. Some people think that it's the devil himself. I don't think it's the devil because the devil is going to be given a title in this book, and it's a dragon. The devil's going to be told or, or called a dragon. So who is this beast? I think the best explanation for who this beast is is that this is the Antichrist empowered by the powers of the abyss, empowered by demons. And I believe that it's not only the beast himself, the individual, the Antichrist, but he's going to bring an entire world system around him, as we see, that's going to do what he says and love what he loves and hate what he hates. He makes war with these two witnesses and overcomes them and kills them. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city. Their dead bodies are just left there. That's considered the worst curse to not be buried in a Jewish mindset. And so the world looks on and, and they want to make sure that these people are looked upon with scorn because they hate these two witnesses. And so they leave them unburied. They leave them in the great city, which my Bible says mystically, a better word is spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt. So John is telling us it's not literal Sodom and it's not literal Egypt. Egypt's not even a city, it's a country. So Sodom and Egypt, it's a representation of something else. The city clearly is Jerusalem because it says where also their Lord was crucified. So clearly they died in Jerusalem, they were killed in Jerusalem, and their bodies are being paraded in the streets of Jerusalem. But why Sodom and Egypt? Those two places are wicked places that embody the worst kinds of evil. Sodom was wickedness and immorality. Egypt was oppression and slavery. And the thing that they have in common is their unmitigated enmity with God. They hate God. They have anger and enmity in their heart towards God. So, these two witnesses have their bodies paraded around Verse 9, those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues of the nations look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. Those people were trying to kill them for three and a half years and they couldn't do it. And the Antichrist finally does it. And so for three and a half days, they're celebrating. And they would be celebrating longer if they could, but they will be raised from the dead after three and a half days. They wouldn't permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb, again, reinstating and uh, redeclaring the, the curse that is being placed upon these two witnesses by the world. The world hates these two people. And those who dwell on the earth, verse 10, will rejoice over them and celebrate and will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. We've looked at that phrase, dwell on the earth. Dwell on the earth, it's just a very clear technical term for non-believers. It's a technical term for the unconverted. It's used 12 times in the book of Revelation. And it's a word that describes unbelievers. Now, I don't know how everybody's seeing this. Some people uh, bring in like satellite television and it's being streamed throughout the whole world and everybody can see. Maybe. I know 
for me, like when it rains, my internet goes out. So I don't know if that's happening with all of the stuff that's going on with the trumpets, judgments, and the seals. And Maybe it is. I don't think so. But somehow everybody knows this has happened. Maybe they all gather together in Jerusalem. You know there's been massive death. There have been billions of people who have been killed by these judgments leading up to chapter 11. But what I want you to see is how they rejoice over the death of these two witnesses. The world hates God. And if you're here and you're a believer, praise the Lord you're saved. But you need to remember that your heart, apart from Christ giving you the gift of salvation, your heart was just like these people. You hated God too. You were a good person, I'm sure, but in your heart, you hated God. You were an enemy of God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't love him, you don't follow him, you don't cherish him, you don't delight in him, then however nice you are, and I mean, all of you are incredibly nice people, however nice you are, you have a heart that says, I ultimately wish God were dead and I ruled the world because I would make a better God than God. That's what these earth dwellers are saying. They're celebrating. Side note, uh, there was an amazing example. I teach biblical interpretation here. I teach hermeneutics here, how to interpret the Bible. And we talk a lot about taking verses out of context. And I brought in one time a Christmas card that the Christmas card on it said, they gave gifts to one another. I was like, oh, that's sweet. I don't remember that in the Bible. And then it said Revelation 11. I went, wait, they gave gifts to one another. And the picture's like the three wise men giving gifts to Jesus. And I opened up and it's verse 10. They sent gifts to one another and they didn't finish it out because the prophets were killed, right? So that's taking a verse out of context. A little hermeneutics lesson for us. But that's, I mean, this really is happy dead prophets day, right? They are rejoicing over their death. I remember when I was younger, 1993, I remember seeing pictures on TV. Remember the, the conflict in Somalia? Remember the battle in Mogadishu where those two helicopter pilots were killed and their bodies were paraded around in the streets? I remember that. I won't forget that. I remember pictures, seeing pictures of their bodies. That's what's happening here. It's a very interesting reversal. It's a very... Uh, kind of a Jewish reversal on the Jews celebrating in Purim, the, the celebration of Esther, when they celebrate Haman's death, right? They celebrate that Haman died, a Gentile pagan who was going to kill all the Jews, and he died, and the Jews were saved. Interesting reversal here, because two Jews have now died, and the whole world is rejoicing. Why? There's a number of reasons why they're rejoicing, but I think you can see it at the very end of verse 10. The prophet's tormented those who dwell on the earth. They didn't torment them with the plagues. Yes, those are tormenting plagues, but they tormented them long before, and they did not do it purposefully. Nobody should go out to evangelize the lost and purposefully seek to be offensive and tormented. That's not what we do. But when you share a message with a non-believer who wants their autonomy, and you're sharing a message of your own personal death, right? I have died. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and that's the best thing in the world. That's so, like, un-American to people, right? We have our own autonomy. Stand up for yourself, right? We're libertarians. We can do our own thing. We fight for liberty. Give me liberty or give me death. I don't want to be a, a slave to somebody else. And we go around proclaiming, I'm a slave to Christ. He's my master, and it's the most amazing thing in the world. I've died. He lives within me. He tells me everything that I do. You're told what to do? Again, I tell this to my students here at, at school. I tell them the coolest thing in the world is not having to make a decision ever. I don't make any decisions. They've all been made for me, and they're here in this book. I just figure out what the decisions are that God made, and I do them. They're like, that's so boring. No, it's not. Trust me, it's not. Some say, that's so frustrating that somebody else has to tell you what to do. This is coming from, you know, high school students who are like, I want to get away from my parents. I hate them and I want to leave. And no, no, no. It's the best thing to have somebody tell you what to do. Because I know that that person is the best person in the world. Jesus loves me. He gave himself for me. So whatever he tells me to do, how could I not gladly do it? I love him. 
that you share this message with people that do not love Christ, that love their autonomy, they love their sin. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist lost his head because of this, right? He told Herod, you cannot have a relative, you cannot divorce your wife and then take a relative to yourself. That's sexual immorality, adultery, that's unfaithfulness on a whole host of levels. You cannot do that. You remember, John the Baptist did it in a very amazing way because it says in the text that Herod would go down, Herod imprisoned John the Baptist, and he would go down every night to listen to, to John speak to him. So clearly Herod knows John loves him. Clearly Herod knows that John speaks with kindness and with grace and with compassion, even though there's hard things to say. He doesn't just write John off. He loves listening to John speak. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Somebody has to win. You can't serve two masters. And so John's head is cut off for speaking out against sexual immorality. If you love your sin, you're not going to be happy when somebody shows up and says, you can't live in your sin anymore. And so the earth dwellers are tormented. Three lessons so far. God's purposes and plans for Israel won't fail. God's gospel will be proclaimed, and it will. God's gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth. Lesson number three, the world loves sin more than Jesus. But the chapter doesn't end there. Brothers and sisters, there is a massively important word in verse 11, and that word is but. The earth dwellers look like they won. But lesson number four for our time this morning, salvation triumphs over sin. Salvation triumphs over sin. After the three days, the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. God always has the last word. God raises them from the dead. All of their celebrating will come to a screeching halt while they're dancing around the dead bodies and celebrating. The two witnesses stand up. So, of course, great fear is going to fall on you, right? Even if it's somebody that you love, if they are raised from the dead in your presence, great fear is going to fall on you. How much more so somebody that you hate, somebody that was your enemy, somebody that you killed, somebody that you saw kill other people with fire out of their mouths. You're going to be incredibly terrified that these two people are raised from the dead. And if I'm one of these two witnesses, I'm raised from the dead, and I think now's my time, right? Nobody can stop me. I'm alive. Nobody can kill me anymore, and I can just do whatever I want with these people. And they're all around. They're all watching. They've all been parading my dead body around in the streets, and now I get my vengeance. And again, that's why you're very happy that I'm not Jesus, right? That I have a Savior who redeems me from such selfish, sinful, vindictive thinking. Because they are raised up, and immediately God says, come up here. Your time's done. Your time's done. Instead of taking vengeance, I picture these two witnesses not only joyful that they're going home, but weeping. They are wearing sackcloth. They know that these earth dwellers that do not repent as they themselves are being taken up into heaven, they're looking at people who are going to receive the judgment of God. That is not a, a declaration that we make lightly. And so they go, they go up to heaven. Reminds us of Elijah, the way Elijah went up to heaven. Reminds us of Jesus when he ascended. Reminds us of the church. The church is gone by now in this uh, portion of the book and the church was taken out, right? Taken out of the earth into heaven. Again, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know what's coming next. Verse 13, in that hour, there was a great earth earthquake. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people, and the, the word for people isn't the normal word for people. It's a word that has references to authoritative names. So it's probably prominent people who owned and operated the city, who owned and, and tried to destroy the, the two witnesses. It's probably calling out people by name in judgment. They're killed in the earthquake. But the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. Again, Zechariah chapter 12, the, the entire uh, back half of that chapter is all about this moment. 
It's all about this moment when people will see and will know that it's God who's working and they'll repent and they'll turn and trust in him. In fact, in Zechariah 12, it's so specific. It says, the women will believe first, then the kids, and then us thick-headed men will say, you know what, I think something awesome's happening, let's follow along. Again, it's all been described before in the Old Testament that God will bring about salvation for his people, for his chosen people, the Jews. Salvation's come to the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles at this portion in Revelation has ended. And the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and will believe. John ends this section in verse 14 by saying, the second woe is past. That sixth trumpet and its interlude is done. And the third woe, that seventh trumpet, is coming quickly, which we will look at next week. How do we wrap this up? I think if we just take those four points, we can conclude our time together this morning by internalizing what we've learned from these witnesses. Number one, God had a purpose for Israel that won't fail, and he does for you too. He has a purpose for you too, and that purpose will never fail. He has a plan. He's going to make that plan happen. He has a promise. He's going to keep that promise, and it's all here in his word. Number two, God's gospel will be proclaimed. It will be. My question is not, is the gospel going to go forth? My question is, is the gospel going to go forth from CBC? The gospel is going to go forth. It's just, are you wanting to jump in and be a part of it? Are you wanting to be obedient? Either we're going to send people to go out and share the gospel, we ourselves are going to go out and share the gospel, or we're going to be disobedient. Those are our only options. The doing of evangelism, yes, it will always cost you something. It will always cost you something. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's energy. Maybe it's money. It always involves the loss of something. Sometimes for us, I think we, we fear most often the loss of our dignity or our pride, you know, our image, that we look like fools because we're sharing the message of a, uh, of a Jew who died 2,000 years ago who can save your soul from hell. Like, that's a crazy message, and maybe we just don't like our pride to be wounded. Maybe don't, we don't want to be rejected. But we've all been given a great commission. The question is, are we going to tell others? And I, I end where I started. How could we not? If we would gladly text somebody when we hear an amazing song and we click share and we send it to them, you've got to hear this. How much more so the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number three, the world loves sin more than the Savior. So we need to, to show them that Jesus is better than sin. Can I just ask you that? Is Jesus better than sin? Do you love him more than you love sin? I understand we still fight sin. We still struggle with sin. That's what is going to make heaven amazing because sin is finally gone. The penalty of sin was done for at the cross. Amen and amen. The power of sin has been broken at the cross, but the presence of sin still resides in me. One day, the presence of sin will be gone. That's heaven. Until that day, let's fight with everything we have. If you're a believer here this morning, let's fight together to love Christ more than we love sin. Let's unmask sin for what it is. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you know Christ, maybe you know about him, maybe you know intellectually who he is, but you could honestly sit here this morning and say, I, I think that I actually still love my sin more than I love him. Maybe it's your autonomy. Maybe it's your own ability to make your own decisions. There's just something in you that loves anything more than Christ. I would just plead with you, today is the day to say, I'm done. Christ is better. I, just preach that to your own heart and follow that message. Even this morning, turn to somebody next to you and, and ask them, why is Jesus better? And as we share the gospel, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're sharing the gospel, yes, the message of the gospel has the bad news. Yes, it has to have the bad news of judgment for sin. But if that's all you preach, you're not preaching the gospel. Because you have to say sin has sucked you into a lie that you think it's better, but Jesus is way better than sin. It's not even worth comparing. He's better by far. Finally, point number four, salvation triumphs over sin. So we can go forth with guaranteed success, right? Our evangelism has guaranteed success backing it. Maybe we won't see the fruit, but we know God's going to do something with it. Our job is just to be faithful. So can I ask you this morning, what if it was you? What if you were one of these two witnesses? 
How would you feel being the last two individuals on the face of the earth that want to follow God? Would you hide? Would you speak? What gave them such boldness? R.C. Sproul, speaking of Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards, said, These men all were conquered, overwhelmed, and spiritually intoxicated by their vision of the holiness of God. That's, that's my prayer for us, that every Sunday you would be conquered, overwhelmed, spiritually intoxicated by your vision of God. Their minds and imaginations were captured by the majesty of God the Father. Each of them possessed a profound affection for the sweetness and excellence of Christ. There was in each of them a singular and unswavering de devotion and loyalty to Christ that spoke of a citizenship in heaven that was always more precious to them than the applause of men. Citizenship in heaven that was always more precious to them than the applause of men. Earth dwellers can say whatever they want. If Jesus is pleased by what I'm doing, I'm satisfied. So John Wesley said it this way, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. So brothers and sisters, let's be like these two witnesses. Let's learn these lessons. Let's hear them preach to us this morning. And let's go out with winsome, compelling, compassionate, clear, and gracious testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. I want to pray and ask God's blessing. And then because of time, we'll just sing uh, the, the chorus, that last chorus of my Jesus, I love thee. But as I pray, I just, I want to ask you right now to ask the Lord, if I was one of these two witnesses, what would I do? And Lord, would you make me bold like them today? Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. We desire to be made ready for evangelism, to be emboldened, to evangelize the way that these two witnesses did, with sackcloth in our hearts, as it were, enshrouding every word we say, just like John in chapter 10, eating that scroll that it was sweet to his taste but bitter in his stomach. The message that we have to proclaim is incredibly sweet, but it's also bitter because if it's rejected, it just brings condemnation. So, Father, please make us those who would go out and share Christ faithfully, boldly, with tears in our eyes. And may we do all of it because we love you more than anything in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. In mansions of glory.